Uh, today we continue uh, our sermon series on relationships, uh, looking at how to navigate life with others according to God's word. And uh, this sermon series really birthed out of our study of Ephesians. And uh, as we uh, walk through Ephesians, we, we see the gospel unfolded in chapters one through three, and then the gospel applied in chapters four through six. And in particular, we begin to see how the gospel is applied to our relationships, starting in Ephesians 5, uh, 22, where it begins to, uh, Paul begins to apply the gospel to marriage. And then he goes on to uh, apply the gospel to the relationship between parents and children. And we took a break over the last few weeks to think about singleness and friendship and conflict, relationships that uh, also are important for us to understand God's design for. Uh, we, today we come back to Ephesians and, and we're really going to look at our relationship uh, in, in, in terms of work and God's design for, our relation, for, for work and our relationship with others in our work. Uh, and that's going to bring us to Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Uh, and what's unique about what Paul does in our passage, uh, not only in verses 5 through 9 here in chapter 6, but really in Ephesians 5, 22 through uh, Ephesians 6, 9, is he's giving instruction for what might be called uh, the household code. It's it's instruction for what was taking place within uh, the, the households there in Ephesus. So that's why you see this emphasis upon the marriage relationship and the parent-child relationship. And there within the household, as would be common, there would often uh, be household servants or slaves. And uh, and Paul is going to show uh, the believers here at the church at Ephesus what those relationships should look like. And, and in many ways, it patterns after what he does within marriage and within the parent-child relationship in that he addresses both parties, uh, particularly unique within Paul's context. And as we think about uh, this subject of God's design uh, for work, uh, we, we're really looking at it through the lens of, of Paul teaching on the relationship between slaves and masters. And, and when we think about slaves in the, the first century, particularly in the Greco-Roman context, uh, it's estimated that up to 80 to 90 percent of the population uh, of the time were slaves. Uh, slavery uh, made up much of what we think of as the workforce uh, today. And in fact, one, uh, one author says that the slaves constituted the workforce, not only domestic servants uh, and, and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors and teachers and administrators that carried significant influence in uh, the Greco-Roman society. And so there, was, uh, there really was a sense in which uh, the relationships between slaves and servants and, uh, and masters was part and parcel of what, what the workforce looked like in a first century context. And, and so it's for that reason that we can look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 and, and, and gain an understanding of, of how we can think about work today. Um, and, and we'll ultimately see as we look at this passage that living under the lordship of Jesus changes the way we work. It changes the way we see our work. It changes the way we do our work. It changes even the way we're going to see how we lead in our work. But before we, we really dive into to looking at what Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 tells us about work, it's a, it's a passage that as we read it today with 21st century ears in light of our particular American church context, that we can't help but address the subject of slavery. As you read Ephesians 6, uh, verse 5, slaves, obey your masters. Just 
verse 5 strikes us uh, with a certain history that we have to acknowledge and understand. And, and when we think about what the Bible says about slavery, we have to understand it in light uh, of our particular history of American slavery. And so uh, that's, that's what I want to do before we jump into this passage to help us think about this, because it's particularly an important topic uh, today. And, and I say that both uh, pastorally to help us think through how we should think about these things, but also apologetically uh, that there are many who would look at the Christian faith and say, how could I believe a faith? that endorsed and supported and even advocated for the enslavement of African-American people uh, in this country. And and we have to understand what the Bible teaches uh, and begin to uh, understand it and apply it. And and at the outset, when we think about slavery in uh, its ancient and uh, Near Eastern context, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk both in the Old Testament as well as in the New, uh, there are some some things that are definitely different than what we saw as the prevailing concept of slavery, Western slavery in particular, from the 16th century through the 19th century. And, and, and two things that are particularly relevant is that when we look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, slavery wasn't race-based. Um, and in fact, we uh, historically, we can see that the, uh, the idea of racial superiority and particularly white supremacy was a, a social construct created to really uh, to kind of prop up slavery and, and, to, um, and to really um, give credence to it and to, uh, and to help advocate for it and, uh, and to uh, ultimately bring it into, um, into the position of influence and power that it had within society. And so when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't see the same type of race-based um, slavery, nor do we see a slavery that's lifelong. Uh, in fact, uh, slavery in, in both the ancient world as well as what we see in the Old and New Testament was seldom lifelong. Uh, in fact, many, uh, in fact, perhaps you could say most slaves were uh, ultimately uh, released from slavery or, or somehow worked their way to freedom um, and and ultimately, slavery came about often because of debt uh, or because of war, that someone uh, was in debt and then in order to work their way out of debt were enslaved or perhaps through war came to be enslaved. And, and if one were uh, enslaved through debt or war, if your children were born, they uh, would also be slaves. And uh, and, and yet, when I say this, what I don't want to do is I'm not saying that the Bible presents a good slavery and then there's a bad slavery. I, I'm not trying to say that um, what the Bible is presenting isn't as bad as what um, what we saw within American chattel slavery in uh, the 16th through the 19th century. That's that's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, I think the, the foundations of both, when we look at God's Word, we see uh, that slavery is not ultimately according to God's design for humanity. And when we, we look at Genesis 1 through 2 and Revelation 21 through 22, we don't see uh, the enslavement uh, of people. We don't see it as part of how God intends relationships to be patterned, nor do we see it as uh, part and parcel of who God reveals himself to be. In fact, we see the exact opposite, that God reveals himself as a God who delivers people from slavery. 
And when God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals himself in Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8, that saying, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land of Egypt to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel's very relationship with God was built on the foundation of being set free from slavery. God is a God who sees the suffering of his people and of oppressed people, and he is a God who delivers. The way God identifies himself is as a liberator of those who are in bondage. And in fact, as we see the story of the Exodus uh, played out throughout the scriptures, that it it becomes kind of God's, um, in God's resume, to be a God who delivers people from bondage and oppression and particularly the bondage and oppression of sin, and that when we see the gospel uh, announced, it's a gospel that brings about freedom from the enslavement of sin and death. Jesus sets us free. Jesus is the God who delivers. And when we see God as a God who delivers at the very core of who he is, we, we don't see a God advocating for the enslavement of people, but the freedom of people. And in fact, God's deliverance of his people from slavery in the Old Testament became became a, a foundational motive for how they treated others. In Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 18, God tells Israelites, you shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. This is who God is, and in fact, in light of who God is, it's how God's people are to live. And yet you say, well, Michael, doesn't the Old Testament have laws about slavery? Doesn't the New Testament talk clearly, as we see in our passage, about slaves and masters? So how, if it's not according to God's design, why do we see teaching on it in the Bible? And I think it's an important question for us to ask. And I think if if slavery isn't according to God's creational intent, what we can say as, as we look to the scriptures is that God gives laws and then we ultimately even see teaching within the scriptures that limits the damage that can be done by the enslavement of people. Uh, we, we see this uh, in uh, the, the teaching in the Old Testament in a number of ways. And in fact, uh, for an Israelite, uh, the Bible teaches that an Israelite couldn't be enslaved for more than six years. At the seventh year, the Israelite was to be set free, according to Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15. Uh, we, we see that uh, those who are foreign slaves were, were not given the same freedom after six years. However, uh, it isn't as if they are left uh, to themselves. And in fact, foreign slaves were protected from abuse by the teaching of the law. And we see this particularly in Exodus 21 as well as in some other passages. But in Exodus 21, uh, we see that if a master were to kill a slave, that the master was to be put to death. We, we see a fundamental principle that's evident in creation that God made all people in his image uh, and therefore all are worthy of dignity uh, and, uh, and respect and, uh, and the taking of one's life is a sin against the image of God. And that isn't untrue for a servant or a slave. It's upheld and true even for a slave in the Old Testament. In, in, in fact, 
If a master injured a slave, if you look in Exodus 21, we won't flip to read there. If you knock a tooth out of your slave or poke an eye out of your slave, you're to let the slave go free. There, there is no indication that within uh, the, the way in which God was leading his people to, uh, to, to limit the damage done by enslavement, that, that there was this freedom of masters to abuse and use uh, those who served as their slaves. In fact, and we see this in other places that slaves, uh, in many ways, their work was constrained. They could work for no one else, but there was freedom to marry and have families and freedom to learn. In fact, learning was often uh, in, uh, encouraged uh, so that the work could be done well. And, uh, and we see a different pattern often than what played out in American slavery. Uh, and that even would go beyond the, uh, the measures that God's word gave to protect his people. We see that in Deuteronomy 23, slaves who escaped and found their way to Israel were to be able to settle freely in Israel and to live without oppression. The Bible doesn't envision, the Bible, I should say it this way, the Bible envisions one gaining their freedom as good. And we'll see that played out again in the New Testament. But within the, um, the, the manumission of Israelite slaves, the, the, the freedom of, a man, of Israelite slaves after seven years, as well as the, the limits to protect uh, the safety and the, um, <clears throat> and the dignity of, of slaves in the Old Testament, we see how God limits the damage done by enslavement of people. But in the New Testament, it even goes further beyond that. While there's still limits that are being given, we see a really a radical difference in the way in which the New Testament is going to address slaves and masters. Number one, the New Testament address slaves as fully capable individuals, as active agents with responsibility and, uh, and a certain, um, <clears throat> just as we see in the Old Testament, a dignity that is evident by the addressing directly of slaves. But it goes beyond that in the New Testament and that God actually, I believe, undermines the validity of slavery through the gospel. We see this uh, on, a, uh, on a very basic level, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I didn't mention this in Exodus 21, 16, as well as in 1 Timothy 1, 10. Both Old Testament and New Testament condemn the trafficking of human beings, the stealing of human beings, which especially was true of uh, of a Western American uh, chattel slavery in which uh, Africans were stolen, ripped away from families, and brought over through the Middle Passage, over two million dying in that, um, in that passage uh, over the ocean to the Caribbeans and, and to America. The, the, the horrific nature of it from the very outset was clear in the teaching of scriptures that it was sinful uh, at its very basis, at its origin. But it does so in other ways in that the gospel teaches the equality of various groups, including slaves and masters in Galatians 3.28. It would say that there is neither slave uh, nor free, that we have this unity in Christ, this equality in Christ that's implied by it and clearly taught by it. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.21-23 would say, if you can gain your freedom, then do so. And yet we, we also struggle as we read the New Testament because we ask, why didn't he just say, get rid of it, abolish it? Uh, and there is this real sense in which Paul is uh, addressing an institution that was part and parcel uh, of Roman life. And uh, there's no power that Christians had to undo slavery. But I think the ultimate way in which we see the gospel undermining slavery was how he did so through the relationship 
of slaves and masters within the church. We see this especially within Philemon, as Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. The implication of, of Jesus' teaching to, to love our neighbor as ourself and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the, even the, the working out of the relationship that Paul teaches in, in, in Ephesians 6, 5-9 through 9 would lead to establishing a quality of persons and a dignity and respect of work and a freedom that would be possible through all of that. As we look at the Bible, it, it doesn't, uh, to our modern ears, condemn uh, and just outright uh, throw out slavery as we would like it. But yet as we read the scriptures, what we find is not a book uh, that's advocating for slavery, but ultimately a book that's undermining slavery. There's a, a museum that was created recently called the Museum of the Bible. And, uh, and in the Museum of the Bible, <clears throat> there's a copy of uh, what's known as the Slave Bible. Um, and, and, you know, when we think about what the Bible says about slavery, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's pretty, um, it's both a, an indictment upon Christianity uh, in America at the time, and, uh, and yet uh, also a, a testimony of God's word uh, on this subject. The slave Bible was a Bible that, uh, that masters would allow the slaves to have. If they allowed them to read, uh, they, would, uh, they would have this particular slave Bible. It was a Bible that was void of about 80% of the Old Testament, and which especially included the Exodus uh, narrative from Exodus through Deuteronomy. Uh, and it was void of about 50% of the New Testament. Uh, most of Paul's letters, though certainly not all of Paul's letters, in fact, our passage would be one that would be encouraged and would be left in that Bible. But it, <clears throat> it was that slave Bible that I think speaks to the power of God's Word. Those sinful masters at that time didn't want slaves to read the fullness of God's Word because it was the fullness of God's Word that would bear a testimony that showed that slavery wasn't according to God's design, that slavery, in fact, set limit, that God's word set limits upon uh, enslaved people to protect them, and ultimately in the gospel it undermined them. And what should have took, took place shortly after the writing of the New Testament as the church worked out the gospel, it took a lot longer for ultimately slavery to be undermined and, and ultimately um, done away with in one sense, and yet it even still persists to this day in various forms. And yet I still believe what the New Testament teaches is that it calls the church to undermine slavery by the way in which we apply the gospel in our relationship to one another. And yet, as the testimony would unfold, it, it truly was the, the Christian witnesses who advocated for the abolition uh, of slavery and, and the testimony of black Christians uh, who found in God's word a God who disagreed with their masters. That would, that would ultimately lead to the, the doing away uh, of slavery as we knew it in America and the emancipation of American slaves. And yet, for those who advocated for slavery, not many of them advocated, not all of them advocated for black equality. And that's a, a legacy and a testimony that uh, remains uh, in many ways today. And as a church, we uh, are called as God's people to, to hold on to his word and to think through it in its fullness and allow it to impact the way that we would, uh, we would treat one another and the way that we would live and operate uh, in our world and in our society. 
And so uh, the, the powerful work that we see uh, the gospel do in relation to slavery uh, is, is a work that has to continue to do in all of our hearts today. And, 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 and as we look at what Paul teaches, as he takes, um, as we see God's word being uh, applied here to this relationship between slaves and masters, if what God could call slaves to do in relation to their masters uh, is true in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, it certainly would apply to the way in which we think through our work today and how we relate uh, to those within our work and those who are over us at work, as well as if what Paul says to masters in verse 9 of Ephesians 6 um, was true then, it could be applied to the way in which we think about leading others in our work today. And that's exactly what I want to do. I want us to think about the Christian and work under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, when we read Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, we're going to see a call to understand uh, work in, in, in relation to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So look with me to Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him." So as I said, the, the principle really woven throughout all of the relationships talked about from Ephesians 5.22 down through Ephesians 6.9 uh, is, is the principle that all of our relationships are to be lived under the Lordship of Christ. We, we've tried to show that the pattern that God gives us for relationships is, is a pattern that we often we want to look for God's design for our relationships and yet understand that what God's design for our relationships is, is often frustrated and, and marred by the presence of sin. And so we live in broken relationships. And that includes a broken relationship with the way we think about work. Um, and it's through the gospel that God ultimately redeems us to himself, brings us back into perfect relationship with him, united to him. And also it's, it's ultimately the gospel that restores and enables us to pursue God's design for all the other relationships in our life including work. And I think that's what we see as we look at five through nine, we're, we're going to see that, uh, that the foundational to uh, God's design for our work is seeing the Lordship of Christ. In fact, I would say this, that knowing Jesus is Lord changes the way we see our work. Notice the, the statements, the as statements in verses uh, five through uh, seven. We, we see that uh, we're to obey our earthly masters with fear and trembling with sincere, sincere heart as you would Christ. And he goes on to say that uh, in verse six, uh, we are to, to do so with a sincere heart uh, as servants of Christ doing the will of God. And then he says, rendering service with a good will in verse seven as to the Lord. See, what Paul is doing here is speaking to the motive, speaking to the motive of, of why we work. And it's that motive that changes the way we see our work. It's a motive that's founded in, in this understanding of the lordship of Christ, that as we submit to Christ, he is Lord over our lives. And, and Paul is here speaking to these slaves who are believers, and he's saying, uh, even, even in, in a situation that isn't ideal, your work is done as to the Lord. 
Your work is done as to Christ. You, you are a slave to such and such a master in your current present status, but ultimately your work is to be done as a slave to Christ, as a bondservant to Christ. You see, a biblical perspective on work is that work is a gift. It's, it's given uh, to us in the creation account, not in chapter 3, but in chapter 2. That we are to work and keep the garden. We are to subdue and have dominion. Uh, work is good. It's a good gift from God that we are to, uh, to steward for our good and for the good of others and for the glory of God. And just as I said a minute ago in relation to understanding our relationships, sin, just as it distorts relationships, has distorted our work. <clears throat> and so when we have the thorns and thistles of work, the frustrations and the disappointments and the idolatry of work, we see the evidence of sin working itself out in relation to our work. When we think too highly of our work or when we neglect our responsibility to do our work, we see the presence of sin. And just as the gospel forgives us as our sin, as a priority understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we also see that through the gospel, we see all of life comes back under the lordship of Christ. And just as in creation, our work is given to us as a gift through the gospel, our work is redeemed, so to speak, to be used uh, for God. But even before we talk about it being used for God, Fundamentally, it's to be done unto God. It's to be done with Him as our audience. We'll talk here in a minute about how we are to not be man-pleasers, but uh, to serve uh, sincerely. Um, <clears throat> but, but in a very foundational sense, when we think about how we see our work, we have to see, um, when we think about our work, we have to ask, who are we working for? And who you work for will determine how you do your work. I mean, this is true in, uh, in a real sense when you, uh, in a very practical sense, when you are doing work that is particularly fulfilling. Maybe you're on a team that is particularly exciting or you have a boss that does a great job at bringing out uh, his employees and, and trusting them with work. And there's, there's a real sense in that who you're working for makes a difference. But Paul is going beyond that. He's, he's going higher than that. And he's saying that who you work for is the Lord. And because you work for him, that changes the way you see your work. It's not just to provide money. It's not just something to pass the time. It's something that God intends to use in you, but it's something that he intends for you to submit to him and to do unto him. It changes the way we see our work. And when we understand that we work for him, it influences the way we do our work. And that's the second point that I want us to see. Knowing Jesus as Lord changes the way we do our work. I'm curious to know if, uh, if we could sit down. I'd love to hear the stories of what your first job was. Um, my, my first job came, I was uh, particularly young. Um, I was 15 when I, when I had my first job. And as I look back on it, I wonder like what kind of world I lived in because um, what happened, I, I, I forget how it came about, but I had some connection that a friend told me about a newspaper uh, salesman job. Um, <clears throat> I don't think they have these anymore because they have a thing called the internet and that's how we get our news now. But uh, at the time, uh, there were people uh, who went around and tried to sell newspaper subscriptions uh, to various newspapers. And, um, and so my friend told me about this job and 
uh, it entailed the uh, the boss, kind of the the main person who uh, oversaw everything, to come and meet with my parents. Of course, I had to sign some form, you know, and uh, being a minor and. Uh, so this dude comes over in a blue Astro minivan, um, definitely not sketchy at all. Uh, his name uh, is Brian. If you're watching Brian, I hope you're doing well. Um, Brian comes over, explains to my parents that he picks us up after school. You know, I think we had like an hour to get our homework done. Uh, he picked us up and we would go out for two to three hours. Um, sell newspapers in and around uh, our town and the town beside it, and then we would come back. And you got you know a certain amount of money for a six month subscription, a certain amount of money for a year subscription, and then uh, and and then uh, some other incentives along the way. Um, and so. Um, <clears throat> I thought, hey, I'd give it a try, um, and um, I, you know, still processing how my parents uh, let me go uh, with uh, with Brian in the uh, Astro van just to go about and do whatever. But uh, nonetheless, we did, and it, w- it wasn't a bad situation. And I, I found out I was pretty good at it, um, <clears throat> and 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 yet it was the first time that I realized uh, how I did my work really. Um, it, it, there was some different influences uh, on it. I, I got dropped off on a street and was told just to go do my work. Um, <clears throat> and there are days when I didn't want to talk to people. Um, and yet there was this incentive of I want to make money, so I need to talk to people if I want to make money. Um, and, and yet there are those moments when I knew that uh, Brian was circling around in the Astro minivan, checking on all the people, doing their, uh, doing their routes to make sure that they were going from house to house and covering every place. And... Uh, <clears throat> And knowing that he was watching as well as having these other motives, it really influenced the way I did my work. Well, in a similar way, Paul is showing us when we know that Jesus is Lord, it changes the way we do our work. Just as we saw all of those as statements uh, in verses 5 through 7, they're connected to the way we do our work. It's, it's not only the way we see our work with Christ as Lord, but it's also the way we do our work. In verse 5, it says that we do our work, we obey our earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. The first thing we see is respect. The fundamental relationship of authority and work is that what your boss asks you to do, you listen. That's that's obedience. And so that strikes us maybe as odd to say, but anytime you go to work and your boss tells you to do it, uh, to do something, you do it. And that's called obedience. And that's how work relationships happen. And uh, and so uh, that's what he's saying. But he says with um, fear and trembling. And, and it's interesting, if you flip over to Colossians, Colossians 3 is kind of a parallel passage uh, to this uh, in many ways. Uh, and if you look at verse 22, we see something similar. Um, in fact, it's almost word for word, but there's some slight differences that I think are helpful to understand what Paul is saying. He says, uh, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. I, I think ultimately with fear and trembling is, has much to do with respect for uh, our bosses as much as it has to do with the fear of the Lord controlling our heart. There's a kind of respect and um, that that comes when we recognize the one in whom we are obeying is uh, that our ultimate um, obedience to them, carrying out the work to them, is is a work that's being carried out unto God, uh, as uh, as Christ, uh, as unto Christ, as you would to Christ. That there's this fear and trembling that that negate that that helps us to navigate our relationship with those over us in our work. 
that we we wouldn't uh, uh, we, we wouldn't look uh, with disdain uh, upon uh, those who are over us, but we would have a measure of work of an understanding that God has put us here and God has given them uh, to us even as a boss, and and yet this isn't. Uh, and in some manner, uh, a sense of doing uh, anything they say uh, that that would be sinful. Uh, there's a there's a limit uh, to our obedience, just as we saw this in relationship uh, to submission. Uh, that any submission to uh, to an earthly master that calls us to sin against our heavenly master, we, we see this very thing in uh, in Joseph in the Old Testament. His submission to his earthly master wouldn't allow him to sin by sleeping with Potiphar's wife who was his authority, but his allegiance to God dictated that he disobey his earthly master. Uh, Respect isn't uh, blind allegiance. Respect, uh, this fear and trembling, stems from a fear of God. And it's that fear of God that helps us to navigate uh, when we should say no to one over us uh, and when we should um, humbly respect what's being asked of us. And he goes on to say, uh, with a sincere heart in verse 5. It speaks of integrity, respect and integrity. Uh, when we talk about a sincere heart, it's both a, uh, can be used to describe uh, or indicate focus as well as integrity. Uh, that the way we do our work is full of, of integrity. That there's not this double-mindedness. There's not this deceptiveness in our work that we're carrying out our work with integrity, that what we say we do, that we we don't appear one way and do things a different way. We're not operating underneath the table or we're not doing things on the side. We, We have sincerity, integrity in our work. We also see in verse 6 that we're to, to not do this by way of eye service as people pleasers. Uh, but ultimately, uh, he says in verse 6, uh, as servants of Christ, that there's a, a sense of diligence to our work. It's actually that we're not to be, the, the word is literally eye slaves, uh, not, not enslaved to what others perceive of us and are thinking about us, not, not doing our work to get the attention of some and to garner the favor of some, but doing it as unto the Lord. And, and here I actually, as I was thinking through this, I found, I was just reminded of how helpful it was to think back in the Old Testament to Joseph and to Daniel and to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When we think about uh, our work relationship, sometimes we think, well, maybe what's most important is that I'm seen by the right people so that I get uh, positioned in the right way to do, the, to do this or that. But when, when we see what God's design is for us, it's, it's ultimately, if you have God as your audience, if you see your work as unto the Lord, uh, as unto uh, Christ and under his lordship, then it leads you to, uh, frees you in a way to work uh, in such a way with diligence, not with the view of what others are thinking of you, but with a view of pleasing the Lord. And it's for this reason that Christians should be the people that every employer in Ann Arbor and Ipsy and the surrounding area want to hire. Because we're the kind of people who do our work with respect and integrity and diligence. We're not the kind of people that need to be watched. We're the kind of people who can be trusted. And in fact, there's an eagerness that Paul talks about when he says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. There's an eagerness to our work, an eagerness honestly defined both by cheerfulness, uh, the sense of um, with uh, uh, doing the will from the heart, 
Uh, that there's this eager, cheerful attitude towards our work and even an expectancy in our work that we know our work is seen by God and will even be rewarded by God. And the reward points forward to a, a future reward in heaven that, that none of our work, even if it's not fully appreciated now, will be seen and appreciated then. And that God sees it now. We can know that he uh, sees us as his people and we have the promise of his reward. Now, when I, when I think about what this is teaching us about work, I really think it applies to any kind of work. It, it applies to work you're not getting paid for in your home. It applies to, to the work you're, uh, you're getting paid for. It applies to whether your work seems menial and unfulfilling as well as if it is deeply fulfilling and satisfying. God's calling us to do our work in a particular way because He is Lord not because of some other set of circumstances that align just rightly. If it all works out, if you get the right job with the right pay scale and the right place, then do these things. He's saying because Christ is Lord, do your work like this. And in fact, when we think about Christ being our Lord and the way it changes the way we do our work, I appreciated um, how Tim Keller articulates this. Uh, he has a book called Every Good Endeavor. In fact, I believe our women uh, in our women's discipleship are going to be reading through this book in the future. Uh, he says, Christians have been set free to enjoy our working. If we begin to work as if we are serving the Lord, we will be freed both from overwork and underwork. How so? Well, think about it. What, what Paul is saying here in terms of the way we do our work, there's a temptation and a tendency to overwork in, in our society because it's through our work that we gain, obviously, money, uh, success, uh, a notif- notif- uh, being, um, being seen and appreciated and valued. It also is often through work that we gain power. And, and there's a temptation to even overwork to a point that we put too much emphasis in it, where as Paul is saying, if I'm serving the Lord, I can't get caught up on myself and on others. So even if your work is particularly fulfilling or you're trying to accomplish something through your work that seems particularly appealing to you, what God's word would say is to, uh, in, in many ways, it, uh, it kind of grounds us in our work so that we don't expect too much from our work or seek to find in our work what we should find in God. Are you tracking with me? God's God's encouraging us to think about the way we do our work so that we don't have expectations for our work or seek to find in our work what can only be found in God. And yet, it also helps us to avoid underwork. I think about the current situation we find ourselves in where every, uh, for, for many people, they're now working from home uh, where they used to work under the eyesight of their bosses. Now they're not working under the eyesight of their bosses. There are others uh, who are not working at home and the stresses and the challenges of work are, are even greater. And, uh, and within all of our work, there can be a temptation and a tendency to, to do uh, in many ways, either as little work as we can to get by, or we particularly, when we don't find um, satisfaction or enjoyment in our work, we can, uh, we can neglect our responsibility for how we do our work. And, and God's word would challenge us in that. He would say, don't expect from your work or find satisfaction in your work that only should be found in God, but, but also don't neglect your work and be unfaithful to do your work in accordance with God's word. 
with what He calls us to. Uh, the sense of, of diligence and integrity. We just think about it on that, on that level uh, from, from the way in which we do our work. What if nobody's watching? Are you, are you being faithful to do what, uh, what you know you should do or are you doing what you know you can get by with doing in your work? You know, are you, um, are you uh, diligent and eager in your work? And I think this is a challenge, uh, especially in the work-from-home environment. I, I know others who are in sales or other jobs that are at home. I think this is even true uh, for, uh, for parents and for especially moms in the home, that there is a, uh, sometimes a, a discouragement that uh, if things seem the same, that you're not accomplishing what you want to accomplish, and, and the, the sense of eagerness even uh, can, can go away, a sense of doing the, the work from uh, from a heart from uh, as it says in uh, verse 7 rendering service with good with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that our labor is seen by the Lord and will be rewarded by him that there's a, uh, a particular encouragement and challenge not to um, to to overwork or to underwork when we see that God is calling us in light of the lordship of Christ to do our work in a particular way and the, the encouragement and the promise of verse 8, I, I think, can't be understated. In verse 8, when he says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether a slave or free. Our work should be motivated by and sustained by the fact that God sees and will reward our work. I know I need that encouragement sometimes when I feel like my work isn't accomplishing what I want. When I feel like my work isn't as satisfying as I would desire. When I feel the frustrations, the thorns and the thistles, uh, as Genesis 3 describes of work. When, when we feel the, um, just the unmet expectations in our work, and yet we choose to respond to our work day by day as unto the Lord seeing our work as with Christ as Lord, and that we would do it in this particular way, marked uh, by a respect, marked by an integrity, marked by a diligence and an eagerness that God sees, that God knows, that God is working even in our unsatisfying work, as well as we can, we can trust him that we can work and then we can, uh, we can walk upstairs or downstairs or um, leave the workplace and go home and we can entrust it to God. I, I honestly, I think for myself, I'm reminded um, when the disappointment of not accomplishing what you want to get accomplished when your to-do list is, um, uh, is, is unchecked, I'm reminded that God alone gets his to-do list done every day. And that our unchecked to-do list, we can submit to him knowing that he sees us and knowing that he will reward uh, even those endeavors which don't live up to our, our expectations or desires. Knowing that Jesus is Lord changes the way we do our work. And, and in this uh, passage, it, it spends the predominant amount of time addressing the slaves, which uh, we, we see, and as I mentioned earlier, is a particularly dignifying um, uh, a dignifying move that Paul makes in, in addressing uh, the slaves within the household. And, and it particularly flows from the gospel that it brings together slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female, into the body of Christ. 
with dignity and, and respect and value. And, and yet he also addresses the masters. And, and I think this is, uh, as we apply this, it, it, it shows us how we should lead others in our work. And that knowing that Jesus is Lord not only changes the way we do our work, but it changes the way we lead others in our work. And, and by extension, I think we can say that anytime we have responsibility for or authority over others in our work, whether on a small level within our team, on a large level, um, even to the very top of a company or an organization or, um, or, or some other uh, sphere of influence, when we think about having leadership over others, there's a particular word that God's word has for us. And verse 9, we see that masters are to do the same to them. I can't, I can't speak to how, uh, when we talk about slavery in many ways, undermine, when we talk about the gospel undermining slavery, we, we see masters being called to do to their slaves in a likewise manner what slaves are called to do their master. Uh, we know that ultimately it's not saying that masters should obey this, their slaves, but in a very fundamental way, the respect and integrity and diligence and eagerness, the, the care and concern that a slave would have to have to accomplishing the work that was entrusted to them, that same expectation was laid upon masters for the way they treated their slaves. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I think we can see four principles that apply to the way we lead others or exercise authority over others. The first is mutuality. We, we see this, the do unto, do to them, um, in verse nine, excuse me, do the same to them. That there's this mutuality that's expressed in terms of the relationship between the master and the slave. Uh, that that the, the, the master wasn't to act with no regard to the slave and to only consider themselves, but was to consider uh, those that, um, that they had authority over, that there's this sense of, of care and concern uh, even for those under them, that there's not car, uh, carte blanche authority uh, that, that can be exercised without concern for others. That there's a sense of mutuality and understanding uh, of their relationship to others. And, and, and that mutuality should lead to a fairness. When he, when he says, stop, uh, you're threatening them. Uh, we, we know and we can't gloss over that though slavery in the uh, ancient Near East in this first century context uh, was in many ways different from what we saw uh, within uh, American slavery. It still was, was brutal and there still was mistreatment. There still was abuse. There still uh, was, was even death that was caused and, and abuse uh, and, and many terrible things. And, uh, and this is addressed head on when, when Paul talks about the, the motive in which masters would use over their slaves. He says, stop threatening them. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, if you flip back and you look in verse 23, um, <clears throat> In verse 23 through 24, he says, whatever you do, uh, that's not the passage. Let me see. Chapter four, verse one, excuse me. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Treat your slaves justly and fairly. Just as we saw the uh, Old Testament laws that were meant to protect uh, those who were enslaved here uh, in, in Ephesians 6, there's a, a fairness 
that was to mark a, a justness that was to mark the way in which masters treated their slaves. There was no room for threatening. There was no room for abuse. There was, there was only room for, I think, a, a sense of uh, both fairness and, and, and that would call for a concern, a care, uh, that there would be a consideration even of them on some manner, but a fairness that describes them, that, that a master isn't one who just does whatever he pleases, just as a, a slave isn't to uh, be a, a man pleaser, but is to seek to please the Lord. There's a real sense in which a master can't be a self-pleaser, but uh, has the responsibility to treat with fairness those entrusted uh, un, and, and given under his authority. And then, then there's a sense of humility, that knowing, he says, that, um, <clears throat> that your master and theirs is in heaven. You, you think you're a master, but you are under a master. He's particularly writing here to the church, defining these roles and relationships. He says you are under Christ as Lord, that that should define a humility about the way in which you exercise leadership over others. And then fundamentally, there's an accountability because with God, there is no partiality, that we ultimately will give an account to God for the way that we treat others for the way in which we lead others. And you think about what this is saying, and you think about uh, leadership, there's a, there's a sense in which when we understand the lordship of Christ, it changes the way we view ourselves. So in turn, it changes the way we view others with whom we're responsible for. And I, as, I look at, as I look at the way in which Paul talks about this uh, sense of design for work, I think about the fact that we spend a majority of our life at work, right? If you think about that, um, the, and when you break down the hours that you spend, um, aside from sleeping, uh, you probably spend the most amount of your life in, in terms of your adult life at work. This is no small thing. And, and because we understand the, the lordship of Christ over our work, it means that, that God has purpose in all of our work, no matter what it is. And in fact, in the Reformation, Martin Luther would, would talk about God's purpose being no greater uh, for the priest uh, than for the, uh, from the, the milkman, uh, from the, the maiden in the home, that there's this sense in which the secular sacred divide is done away with and all of work is brought under the lordship of Christ. And when we see that, we understand the vast majority of our time that we spend at work, what we do how we see our work and how we do our work matters. And, and I think it matters in two ways that I want to emphasize. It matters for your growth as a follower of Christ. I want you to understand that God intends to use your work to sanctify you. God intends to use your work to accomplish his will in your life. No matter what form your work takes, your work that you're doing is done in a manner as unto the Lord so that God wants to accomplish through your work his purpose in your life. He wants to make you more like him. He wants to use you to be a blessing to others. He wants to use you to seek the good of others, even the good of your community through the good of your company. That you should see your work as, uh, as God intending to accomplish growth in your life. That we, we shouldn't just think about growth happening when we go to church or when we read our Bible, but it's when we're applying what we're reading in our Bibles to the way in which we talk at work, the way in which we, um, we interact with a coworker the way in which we handle uh, conflict at work, what we do when we're discouraged at work, what we, what we do when we're particularly excited, how we steward our gifts, how we grow uh, in, in skills so that we can do our work better. 
It even could be through how we perhaps have to think through a change in our work. That, that God is working in all of that to accomplish his purpose in our life, to help us to grow, to be more like him. And through your work, as God accomplishes it in your, in your life, God intends to use your work to, uh, to, to seek good for others, to do good for others, to provide for your family, through, perhaps through serving, uh, to do something for those whom you serve. Uh, in, in service-oriented jobs, as you interact with people, it's sometimes easy to see how your work is, is related to others. Don't underestimate that. Don't take that for granted. In, in jobs that are, are more manual and you're not relating to people, sometimes it's hard to see how does what I'm doing here connect there. We, we have to always understand whatever nature our work takes, that it's not only God accomplishing His work in our lives, uh, the spiritual growth in our lives, but also it's God using our work for the good of others. And this is part of how God's designed us, that there's fulfillment that comes through that as, as to how God has hardwired us and designed us because work isn't, um, isn't connected to, to Genesis 3, but it's connected to Genesis 2 and God's purpose and intent in creation. And we see that restored when we see work under the Lordship of Christ. But ultimately, and finally, I think we should see our work as also contributing to our witness. Yes, God will provide opportunities for you to share the gospel at work, for you to communicate the hope that you have. But it's a particular expression of our faith when, the, when we view our work a certain way and we do our work a certain way that enables us to bear witness to our God. And in fact, in, uh, in other places throughout the scriptures, we'll see, uh, as Paul calls um, call slaves to obedience, in fact, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, um, as, as Paul is, is teaching once again about the relationship of slaves to their masters, <clears throat> we see, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. He, he's, he's not saying uh, that they should do anything and everything um, and, and that slavery is upholding, their enslavement is upholding the name of God, but the way in which they do their work bears particular witness to their God. And here I, I was called back to Daniel uh, chapter 6. And, and particularly in Daniel's faithfulness to the Lord in his work and the quality of work with, that he did. How it bore particular witness to the God he served. Our work bears witness to our master. And that's why most fundamentally this passage is teaching us that who our master is matters. The most important question in our life as well as in our work is who is our master? Who has your allegiance? The gospel calls us to give our allegiance to Christ. He's the only master who serves us, who laid down his life for us. And in fact, he's the only master who no longer calls us servants but it calls us friends and invites us in to relationship with him into his family. And when we know Jesus as our master, it helps us to see our work rightly as well as to do our work faithfully so that we put our work in its right eternal perspective. So our work matters and our work matters particularly when we see our work under the Lordship of Christ. And I'm praying for us as a church 
that as we uh, carry out what we do most in our life, our work, that we would be willing to every day submit to Christ in our work so that he might use us in our work and and work through our work to accomplish his purpose in our life so that we can bear particular witness to the God that we serve, who's a God who ultimately served us. Let's pray.